Hey, so Black History Month continues. I want to give a Black History Month shout out to all of my people who had to deal with sundown towns. So sundown towns were areas of the country and um, in many states and cities, including here in the California, where if black people were caught after the sun went down, they would be jailed and more than likely killed as a result of being in town. So this affected many people, obviously, and disrupted their travel plans, but also caused a lot of undue stress. And the idea that these people were free, but didn't have the liberty, because freedom and liberty are two different things. They didn't have the liberty to be in parts of town, even driving through once the sun went down. So I would heavily encourage all of you to look up a sundown town and to find the areas of even places like LA County, where which served as sundown towns for black Americans. So since we're in San Diego, I want to shout out the Claremont Hotel, which is, I guess, sometimes referred to as the Coast Hotel. So it is at 501 7th Avenue downtown in San Diego. And the Claremont Hotel became a black historic site in, I believe, 2001. But it was the largest um, or one of the largest colored hotels in downtown San Diego. So just to remind us that history is everywhere and that, you know, San Diego, even though it's here in the West Coast, you know, tucked away in what we believe to be liberal ass California, it also did have areas that were designated for people of specific races. And I'll, I'll talk more about redlining in San Diego at a later time. But um, I just wanted to mention that for Black History Month. And today's drink (laughs) is Crown on the Rocks because, you know, your girl's going to get into the deep stuff with Reconstruction today. So clink, clink, clank to y'all. I do like Crown Peach. I especially like to mix it with sweet tea, but it does sneak up on that ass. So just make sure that if you're drinking it, you sip slow. So just to recap some of the things I mentioned last week that'll be relevant to this week's podcast or that... Um, I did mention, you know, the dates of the Civil War, and I started talking about the 13th Amendment. So I'm going to, I guess I'll start from there. So we already talked about the 13th Amendment, so there's no need to go into that more. But let's discuss the other two Reconstruction Amendments, because Reconstruction is the theme of this week. So the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments are known as the Reconstruction Amendments. The 14th Amendment gives citizenship to the people who were born or naturalized here. And it also gives them equal protection under the law. So that's something that people usually forget. And then the 15th Amendment, oh, sorry, 14th Amendment is 1868. And then the 15th Amendment is in 1870, which gives all men the right to vote, um, even for previous status of servitude. Just basically meaning that for people who had been slaves, they have the right to vote, and then their future male children, in this case, have the right to vote as well. Keep in mind that this does not include people who had been enslaved but who are women because they don't get the right to vote until the 19th Amendment. But those three amendments are known as the Reconstruction Amendments. So continuing from what we talked about last time, we already discussed how Lincoln is was, because he's no longer here, was an anti-slavery advocate and was not an abolitionist. Um, it's also important to talk about, after the Reconstruction Amendments, like we said, I already mentioned before, the timing of everything. So the timing of everything here is also going to be very, very important. So like I said, I already mentioned the years of these Reconstruction Amendments, but... 
one of the first things that a lot of these newly freed slaves do is get married. So marriage was, and I guess still largely is a state institution, right? Because you need the permission. I don't, in a free society, you need permission of the government to get married. (laughs) But at this time in the 1860s, the people who had been enslaved want to be married because being married and being recognized as a legal couple is supposed to give you protections and privileges within that bond to protect, in this case, in a patriarchal society, your wife and your children to stop them from being brutalized. And we know that brutality was a common thing that many of these people had lived themselves. So, you know, getting into a legally binding marriage helps prevent that. One of the most important things that comes out in the Reconstruction time period, which was from 1865 to 1877, as you'll remember, is the Freedmen's Bureau. So the Freedmen's Bureau is set up to help everybody get back on their feet after the Civil War. Like I already mentioned last time, the Civil War is fought in the South. So, of course, these people are you know, they're having to clean up the South. I mean, these people as in like Southerners are going to be responsible for cleaning up the South, but you still, this is a social welfare program to get everybody back on their feet. So all people, men, women, white, black, doesn't matter. If you need the help, it's set up to try to assist you, but it does cost money, which come from taxes and previous plantation owners or people who still own their plantations, but don't own any slaves, their tax dollars are going toward funding these programs. So keep me in mind the things we talked about last time. They do not want to pay for their previous white low wage employee employees to get access to food, clothing, housing, education, um, job placement. They don't, you know, skilled, um, skilled education, like, you know, to learn a, um, a trade skill. They don't want that to have to pay for them to have access to those things. And they for sure don't want to pay for their previous slaves to have access to that type of education. Because like we said last time, most whites did not, you know, have access to education. Um, some of them would have had, you know, um, skilled labor jobs, but a lot of them didn't, right? They were just there to sort of maintain the supremacist model of the plantation, but were not benefiting from it, which is, a, I guess I should have mentioned that in the Civil War one, right? That they get, they convince these people through this fake allyship over their race that they benefit from the system of slavery when like in actuality they don't. But the Freedmen's Bureau is ended because these wealthy people don't want to have to pay for it anymore. And they use propaganda to convince the white Southern population that the only people who are really benefiting from those programs are the black people. And they try to paint them out like they're lazy, they don't want to work, and why the heck should you want this program to continue? Keeping in mind that the president didn't want the Freedmen's Bureau to to happen, which is why he tried to veto it. This is Johnson, keeping in mind he was opposite political party from Lincoln, did not want this to happen, but because it was still Lincoln's Congress and because he's been assassinated, they continue with his plan. And the same thing happens after Kennedy is assassinated, right? Lyndon Baines Johnson continues on with what Kennedy was working for and working towards, which was civil rights. So coming back into the 1860s. 
even though these programs do overwhelmingly help more whites than blacks because black people were a minority of the population. Um, I didn't mention this before, but only 4% of the enslaved Africans get imported into what is now the United States. That's only 400,000 people. So the U.S. receives the least number of black bodies for the purpose of enslavement, which is why then and now black people are a minority racially in the country. And I mean like black descendants of slaves, people who did not immigrate from other countries are a minority of the population. So they convinced these people to vote the Freedmen's Bureau into non-existence and to stop use, utilizing the program even though they largely benefit from it. And I want to say that the same things happen today when you look at social welfare programs. Whenever you see billboards or ads or imagery surrounding who's using any type of welfare, especially when it comes to food, um, SNAP program, whatever it's called, they usually use either a brown like Hispanic brown or black woman, sometimes they put kids in the picture, but they usually do not put a man in the picture. But it's very much looks like it only benefits brown and black women. And the idea permeates that, you know, they can't take care of their families. And so, you know, it's okay to cut funding for these people because, you know, all they're doing is buying steak and lobster. But when you look at the statistics over who's actually using these programs, that does not align with the imagery. So I'm going to let you all look that up, but just keep in mind that the same thing, the same propaganda tactics are used to end the Freedmen's Bureau, even though, like we said, it helps everybody equally. Another important population of people who are helped by this Freedmen's Bureau are going to be widowed women, especially widowed white women after the Civil War whose husbands died during the Civil War fighting. So I believe the statistic is one third of the white male population in the South was killed during the course of the Civil War. That means there's a lot of women who you know, don't have any male providers. And this is the 1860s. So this is not a time where women can just go to school or get some sort of a certification, especially if they have kids, right? And women don't even have access to many jobs at that time, because the, those jobs would obviously go to the men, especially in the southern states. So it's very difficult for these single, these now single mothers to provide for their children. And the Freedmen's Bureau is one of these groups that really does try to help sustain these people and offer them assistance post-Civil War. But like I said, the use of propaganda makes people think that, well, all these lazy black people are benefiting from it, so we should cut the funding, which of course, then and now, benefits the wealthy because they don't want to have to pay for this stuff anymore. Something else that comes about in this 12-year reconstruction period are black politicians. So we have about 2,000 black men who hold office during reconstruction in the southern states because, and I mentioned this in the lynching podcast, but because black people had always been seen as a separate race, and because they're forced to live segregated as a result of that, even after the Civil War, no matter where you're living, you get local civic representation, right? So if you're thinking about your local area, each city has its own um, mayor, right? Each you know, state has its own governor. You have representatives. So these black politicians, men, were able to get into politics because they were 
you know, living in segregated areas and were representing themselves, which is fabulous because it allows them to use to have a voice in politics in general and also have the ear of higher up politics to talk about things that, you know, are affecting their unique group of people. And I mentioned that when it comes to the um, the lynching podcast with regard to why uh, Mexican-Americans were listed as white for a while. So I did talk about that. Um, one of the negative things that comes about is that you have a lot of people trying to intimidate those politicians to stop them from exercising their constitutional rights to vote and to now as citizens be able to be civically involved. And one of the largest groups, the most popular groups that do that are the the Klan, right? So the Ku Klux Klan is started in 1865 or 1866 from and started by um, Confederate soldiers, people who had been members of the Confederate Army. And in the first wave of the Klan, the first wave of the Klan goes from the 1860s to the 1870s. There's about 500,000 registered members. But the federal government really does try to pursue them for breaking the law. Now, we hear a lot of people today misuse the term freedom of speech, and it's quite frustrating for those of us who understand the amendments to the Constitution. Um, but, well, and, you know, the Constitution as a whole and the Bill of Rights, etc. So, Yes, if these people were just sitting around wearing their hoods with their arms crossed, you know, drinking their apple juice and complaining that they don't like black people and they don't like Jewish people and they don't like women fighting for equal rights, they don't like Irish people and they don't like Catholic people. If they were just talking about that stuff, then yeah, okay, that's their freedom of speech. But the fact that they're then going out and assaulting people, killing people, raping people, beating people up intimidating them when they're trying to vote the fact that they're doing all of that is what's the issue right so that goes way beyond their rights to their freedom of speech they don't have the right to assault and kill and harm other people or intimidate other people so in the first wave of the clan the federal government does try to pursue them and actually works at prosecuting them for breaking the law okay but after the 1870s, which is why the, the first wave ends in the 1870s, is because they were actually being pursued for breaking the law. So they really sort of fall off. The second wave starts in 1915 with the this film called Birth of a Nation. And it's directed by D.W. Griffith. It's played in the White House by the president at the time, who was Woodrow Wilson in you know, 1915. And D.W. Griffith, the director, says that these things in the film actually happened. And then the president... Woodrow Wilson says that he likes the film and he calls it history written in lightning. So even though it's 50 years after the Civil War is over and considering that 50 years later, the people who fought are most of them, an overwhelming majority of them are dead and or too old to be consulted about it. There's no one to stop D.W. Griffith from saying this crap. And the people who know the real history and or who lived it from a different perspective, racially in this case, don't have any equity in Hollywood to make a counter film or to make any sort of public announcement um, or equally as impressive film to showcase the other side of that to debunk what Griffith is saying. So Griffith is playing on the fact that people do not know history when he makes that film. And that film is hugely responsible for the beginning of the second wave of the Klan, which 
kind of falls off in during World War II and is still present today. But that's a, the reason why the government stops pursuing them. The U.S. government stops pursuing Klan's members for assaulting people that they don't like, for killing people that they don't like. You all should know that today they're still allowed, because of their, quote, free speech, they're still allowed to have parades, okay? So in San Diego here, there was someone who wore a Klan's hood in 2020, you know, during the pandemic at the grocery store, um, out in Santee, or as some of us like to call it here, Clan T. But these aren't some like far off people. And I said last time that, you know, the North and the West aren't morally better than the South. It's just, you know, it's, it's different. It looks different, but it's very much the same game. So the Klan is largely responsible for intimidating people and scaring them, especially because from that second wave, the federal government stops pursuing them, stops persecuting them, and really sort of buys into this BS notion that they're just exercising their First Amendment rights to freedom of speech, right? And a lot of these Klan members actually believe that, right? They say, well, we're not, you know, against, you know, any specific group of people. We just want to live separated and we want to live separated because it's in our and their best interest. So, you know, the language, the language <laughs> that these people use to justify everything. Um, one of the things that's important, well, another thing that's important about the reconstruction amendments are that they will come to benefit other groups of people who are not necessarily the descendants of slaves in this country. So the 13th, 14th, and 15th amendments are made to incorporate those 4 million people as citizens, which is why they had to have three constitutional amendments to bring them in equally and to try to establish equity. But like I said, it does come to benefit other groups of people who are not necessarily black. All right, so before we talk about the black codes, I want to talk about the difference between de facto and de jure segregation. So de jure segregation is segregation by law. It's a Latin term. And then de facto is also Latin, but it means segregation in practice. So most of the South has de jure segregation. The Southern states made legal state, well, they made state laws that say that it's illegal to do things interracially you can't and most of us know those as like Jim Crow laws right so you can't go to school with members of the same race you can't live next to people of the same race you can't marry people of this of different races um oh my gosh I hope I didn't say the same but anyway you can't marry people of sep of another race you can't have sex with people of a different race you certainly can't have children with them you can't play chess you can't play checkers you can't you know, be on any equal friendly terms with those people. And in the South, that's mostly white and black people. But like I said, a lot of the Northern and Western states have racial segregation too, but they, a lot of them have de facto segregation. So even if the state doesn't have a specific law saying that, you know, different groups can't intermingle, they have practices that maintain racial segregation amongst its citizen population. So one of the more interesting documents to reference during this time or and for this, you know, podcast is the black codes. Now, I usually use Mississippi's black codes because I think it's a great example and it um, is a pretty condensed version to use for students. I will put a link to it in the description of the podcast. But black codes are in effect from 1865 until 1965. 
So I always like to reiterate again, like the timeline of this, because my mom was 10 when these laws in the Southern states were finally made illegal and the practices were finally made illegal in the states that practice de facto, right? Not not necessarily de jure. So black codes were prevalent in all Southern states. A lot of them are the same laws and rules. They may have a different order, but the point is that it's meant to maintain racial segregation. And like I said, you can't do most things on equal terms with people. But when you look at some of the specific punishments, it's very interesting. So for example, the Mississippi Black Code, which goes into effect two weeks, I think I mentioned this last podcast, but it goes into effect two weeks after the eighth, excuse me, the 13th Amendment passes in December 1865. The second Monday of January 1866, the Black Codes of Mississippi go into effect and last, like I said, for the next hundred years until 1965, when Johnson, when Dr. King and other people pushed the federal government and Lyndon Johnson to actually follow through with the things I'll mention in a little bit, the actual legislation that they passed initially to make things equal and for them to force the Southern states to integrate which they were supposed to have done a hundred years previous. So the black code specified that if you are living with and or married to someone of a different race, you can be imprisoned for life. So while on the surface, it just seems like black people can go to prison from intermarrying with another race. And mostly that other race in this context is white. Um, White people also don't have the freedom to marry other races of people. Right. And I don't want you to think that necessarily everyone's against it. And again, they don't really have the chance to be for it because they're not even allowed to live together. And this is very important. The reason why a lot of these rules are surrounding like the restriction of friendships of people of different races is because, and many of you can attest to this, when you live around different cultures, religions, ethnic groups, races, etc. of people, you quickly realize that they have a lot in common with you. Most people just want to take care of their families be able to make, you know, a livable wage at work, raise their pe- raise their family in a safe neighborhood, right? These days, like be able to send their kids off to school to get a formal education or some sort of a certification that'll land them at least middle class. Even if they have some cultural differences, a lot of people have core values that are the same that transcend gender, race, you know, all that stuff, right? The founding fathers understood that <laughs> People in the 1600s, when they're creating the concept of race that we still use today, understand that. And people during this Jim Crow era also understand that. They don't want the normal working class whites to align with the normal working class blacks. Because that is a threat to the social order and the way the capitalist society of those governments works. Keeping in mind that the people who have access to write these rules are the ones who are still wealthy, even if they don't have slaves anymore. Again, we already talked about this. There's no like minimum wage. So they're still able to amass and maintain large amounts of wealth. And I should remind you that people who had to give up their slaves were were compensated for that. They were given reparations for each person who had been freed from their service to that family. Okay. Like there are people in, I think it was Southern Cal, was it 
South Carolina who were still being paid reparations up until recently. So I don't want you all to think that this is some far off concept. And that's why when people try to make it seem like reparations for the descendants of slaves is just so abhorrent of an idea that, you know, it's laughable or, you know, or ridiculous. It's like, you really don't know what's going on. (laughs) But anyway, back to the capitalist system. So the wealthy understand that they don't want their workers to get together. For the same reason why your jobs and we've created this social environment where people think it's rude to talk about how much money you make at the same job. People should be talking about that. You want to know if someone's making $2 more for you who more than you who just got there because then you're going to go to the boss and say, "Yo, I want this extra $2." If the, if that's the new bar, I should be there or slightly above it, right? So it's the same concept. They don't want these people to be playing chess and checkers, going to church together and doing all these other things because they realize and they understand that they will find common bonds and then they won't hate each other over the things we told them about the other group, right? The gossip that we, the people in power and capitalist control, spread about each group, they will realize that it's a, it was a lie and that they need to form their own opinions, which is why education is so fascinating, right? And the fact that you have so many people who tell me, oh, I didn't know this happened or oh, I didn't know that happened. It's like, well, there's, there's a reason for that. There's a reason you didn't learn this in middle school. There's a reason you didn't learn it in high school. There's a reason you were encouraged not to take ethnic studies classes for history credit so that you wouldn't have to learn it. It maintains the system of the oppressor, but I'm not going to get into that because that's not the theme of this week. Some other notable things about the Black Codes besides that is that it makes it illegal for a Black person to leave their job or they have to pay up to a year's back wages and give it back to their employer. So I myself, especially when I was in high school, my first few jobs, right? I quit jobs, but I've quit jobs before, but I can't conceive of having to pay back all that money to my employer because I quit. Now, keep in mind, these people, like I mentioned before, don't have any sort of like equal opportunity environment where they are able to, you know, not have to worry about workplace harassment or anything like that, or even equal wages. So, If you don't like your job and you're a black person, you have to, first of all, you have to have a contract and you have to have two disinterested white people verify the contract for your employment, like how long you're going to work there. And then if you quit that job, you have to pay back up to a year's wages for quitting. It even says in the black codes that you can be carried back to your employer if you leave the job without going through that process. And the person who you know, quote, carries you back to that job will be paid a flat rate and money per mile. Okay. This is the same thing as the run of the Fugitive Slave Act, where you have, you know, young white men who had no really other way to make a decent amount of money on the job who start, you know, slave catching, quote unquote, and end up kidnapping even free black people in the North and selling them into slavery in the South to make money. So this is a way, again, for these populations of people to exploit the black population under the guise of, oh, they quit their job. In fact, if you're a white person in the black codes, like it says, if you're a white person who convinces a black person to quit their job, you can go to jail and or be fined. If you are a white person and you're caught interacting with anybody black on equal terms, you'll be fined $200, which in 1865, that's $200. Today, that's $1,400. So again, the, the document is called a black code, 
but it very it also very is very limiting on the rights and liberties of whites to exercise their freedoms right most people didn't have $200 then and most people don't have $1,400 now if they get caught interacting with someone who they're not supposed to be interacting with on paper. And just to also put it into context, it doesn't, you don't need like an actual official person or a law enforcement person to catch you doing these things in order to be fined or imprisoned. Any random white person can rat you out or accuse you of doing these things and you will be, you know, apprehended and or dealt with accordingly, which sets the stage for the things we see today where you have, you know, white people, specifically women, calling the police on like black kids selling lemonade or black people in the park using coals instead of, you know, whatever, like just for things that really aren't emergencies, that really it's like you could just continue on with your day and mind your own businesses. And this isn't harming you or anybody in the community. Why are you taking it to this next level? It sets the stage for that. These documents in the 1860s set the stage for what we see today, where you have normal citizens feeling empowered enough and empowered in the system enough to feel that they have the authority to call a law enforcement agency on you and that you will have to deal with the consequences of what they said you did. That's why this is very important. It also states in the Black Codes that Black citizens are not able to have guns or knives. Now, we have a whole, you know, people love to talk about the Second Amendment without realizing that in many Southern states, Black people were unable to legally obtain firearms, even though they have to worry about Klan violence and other forms of state-sanctioned violence, meaning that, you know, those who harm them, even if it's not like an organized group like the Klan, the people who harm them are not going to be brought to justice for the things that they've done to you because you're black or the assault or you know a murder of your family because you're black and you're living in an area where they don't want you to live so that's it's huge the black codes is a huge like lens into what these people are dealing with in those 12 years after the civil war and again into the 1960s when it's finally struck down and Finally, the federal government upholds the law. And the reason why I said last time that the South won the social war was, again, they were allowed to continue this stuff for the next hundred years legally in the 1960s. But even in 1965, when things become integrated, a lot of these loopholes are created, especially in schools where they have to integrate over long periods of time. So, for example, when a lot of schools were integrated in the 60s, they only had to integrate one grade per year, right? So they might integrate like the preschool or the kindergarten by 18, by 1967 or 1968. But then, you know, the next year they have to integrate first grade. So by the time you get to the them integrating the 12th grade, you know, we're into the 80s, which is exactly what happened, like in real life. Like I have met people who've told me, like white people, that their schools, their high schools didn't even become fully integrated until they were already there in the high school. Like people who are only, you know, eight to 10 years older than myself. 
So just going back over the timeline, the reason why I said that there was still racial racial segregation 130 years after the Civil War, which would take us into like the 1980s and 1990s, is because, like I said, a lot of those things were forced to be integrated, but very slowly. And a lot of cities weren't immediately um, forced to integrate. So... I'll talk more specifically about those things later, but we didn't have true equality and the beginnings of equity until the 1980s and the 1990s with what we know as affirmative action. But that's why they had to have affirmative action, because things were taking a long time, like 20, 30 years to finally be able and accessible to people of all races and groups, specifically the people who had been the descendants of slaves who were the bottom caste in society. And even today, we're still dealing with the fact that a lot of those people don't have us, right? Because I'm a member of that group, don't have equity and access. And of course, I have privileges within that. So I have more access than the average person. So it's very important to acknowledge that as I'm talking about it. But the average black American person does not have those accesses and abilities. And it's at a structural level. So I always like to talk about some things that are relevant that, you know, you could look up that um, are very important to what we're dealing with. I did mention that despite having reconstruction and despite having black codes, that there was a an attempt to have legislation at making things equal. But like I said, the Southern states never really had to abide by it. They were allowed to just do whatever they wanted to do. Once the civil war was over, the North really just washed its hands of the South and said, well, whatever the money, the bag is secured as the children like to say, right? The bag's been secured. The money's been secured. We're able to make money off the South now as a country. And it's all economically going into the same pot. So we don't care what you do with the populations of people who live down there again, until the federal government was forced to by the people who were fighting and advocating for civil rights in the 1950s and 1960s. So some things that happened well before the 1950s and 60s that were not upheld are the following. So there was the Civil Rights Act the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which extends the rights of emancipated slaves, saying that anybody born in the U.S. is a U.S. citizen. Like I mentioned, that becomes... Um, part of the 14th Amendment anyway in 1868 that, um, you know, if you're born or naturalized here, you're a U.S. citizen. There was a Civil Rights Act of 1871, which prohibits race-based violence against African Americans, which, as we know, was not being upheld because I've already given you examples. I'm sure you know many of other examples in 1871 where they were being intimidated and um, violence was being put onto them. There was the Civil Rights Act of 1875, which prohibited discrimination in public accommodations. And part of that one was also making sure that people weren't excluded from jury duty, which we know that a lot of black people weren't used for juries. Again, especially if you think about the whole idea of the amendment giving you a jury of your peers, black people were oftentimes not picked to serve on juries of other black people and still aren't because of this idea that somehow we're going to only go by emotion and we're not going to be able to look at a situation for what it is and render a verdict to somebody who happens to be the same color and or race as us. When you look at some of the segregation of um, public transportation in the southern states, if you had a train, for example, that ran interstate, so it went, you know, from state to state, it was 
those are the trains that you don't have necessarily like a colored and a white section because for the trains that went through different states, especially from Southern to Northern states, they were not legally allowed to have those segregated seating areas. But for the trains and buses that just ran within the state, especially within these Jim Crow states, they did have um, colored only and white only sections. And the Civil Rights Act of 1875 is the last one that's passed during this reconstruction period. So having those examples of legislation legislation that passed, looking at even the Reconstruction Amendments to the Constitution, we see that there was a fundamental um, lack of the federal government in protecting, maintaining, and allowing real equality, meaningful equity, and actual freedom for its citizens who happened to be of African descent. People who, of course, became African-American, um, as a result of their naturalization process and inclusion into the union. Um, not, I don't mean union as the, you know, the Northern States, I mean the union as the country becoming part of the country as citizens legally, um, but not really socially. And it's really crazy too, because when you look at even the time period after this, like during what is known as the great migration, there is a fundamental like effort to stop black people from leaving the South. So I'll talk about that in another podcast. But, um, you know, even though the South has all these rules, like saying, you know, you can't do this if you're black, you can't do that. And really, again, like we said, it's also limiting to white people. But, um, you know, if you can't, you have all these rules to stop these people from actually having liberty and real freedom. But then when they want to get on trains to leave, you're like, no, 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 no. You know, we, we can't have you leave. You know, they actually would have police officers stop people, stop black people from getting on trains to leave the South. Right. So it's like, on one hand, it's like, if you don't want us here, why won't you let us leave? That goes back to what I was saying before about what was going on racially, right? And how they don't want these people to align with each other. I want you to consider there were jobs that were reserved for black people, because again, this is a racist system. So black people are always having to be in, in this case, agricultural jobs, low wage jobs, um, wait staff jobs, like waiters and waitresses. And this is very important. If those people who were who those jobs were reserved for, again, these low-wage jobs, especially you know, domestic work, if they left, who would fill those jobs? They would be filled with poor white people who would then not be able to make livable wages either. And then the whole myth of their superiority because of their race would have been blown up. So of course the, the wealthy whites use the you know law officers to stop they're the black population from leaving because if they leave and then it up it, it upturns the whole ridiculous system completely because then the poor whites would understand that like they're not special and you know that there's no way for them to pit themselves against black people like black people have these jobs because they're unable to do something else they would see that it's really just the same hamster wheel so of course they tried to stop them from leaving and you know furthermore the last thing i'll say about this is that you know when you look at the Great Depression and the, I'll talk about this later, but the period that happens immediately after that, these are the jobs where people aren't able to garner social security and aren't able to unionize. Especially when we're talking about these Southern states, you know, people who were domestic workers, people who were agricultural workers, these people weren't able to qualify for the government securities 
for old age the way we have them today. And then they were replaced by an immigrant labor force and weren't given anything else. So when you look at some of the modern day issues with regard to the devaluation of black workers and also the lack of funding in those communities, it is directly related to the things that have gone on since the 1930s. So I'm going to end this episode here. This is longer than I thought, but I hope you all enjoyed it and I'll see you on the next one. Bye.